0: All right, welcome everybody to episode five, I believe, of Jung and the Restless. This is a very special episode because today we are joined by Dr. Nathan Cost. I don't know if, you you technically probably don't have the, the paper on the wall, but Nate defended his dissertation, his doctoral dissertation on Tuesday, I could have, if I was, there it is, nice. If I was a better brother and podcast host, I would have said this like in episode one, but Nate has been doing some like seriously groundbreaking research on the experience of calling. He's talked to um, a whole number of Divinity students and produced some really interesting stuff. He's been working on it night and day for years now he defended his uh his research on tuesday so his dissertation committee i sat in there and listened to the meeting and one of his committee members said that quote i've taught phenomenology for years but i've rarely had a student take to it like a duck in water the way that nate has and rarely she said rarely is the analysis that clear that he presented? And, and another member of the committee said, I don't think I've seen any analysis structured that well before. So congratulations on your successful defense. Congratulations on your PhD. And, uh, we're excited, uh, for you on, on whatever comes next.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. That's. That's very generous, and for the uh, just just so you know, um, I, I do mention you by name in my acknowledgements for for um, allowing me to use up all of your uh, extroversion quota on a, on a regular basis with so many conversations that begin with "All right, Matt, I think I got an idea, but just hear me out." At which point. Wait you listen for 30 minutes and then find a way to repeat back to me everything that i said in about four de- four sentences <laughs>
0: <laughs> why use many word when few word do trick
1: there it is there it is so i appreciate you being on the journey with me matt you're you're definitely you're de- i i definitely wrote you into that dissertation so
0: well i'm honored to have my name on page 137 <laughs> In in the the in fine print in the acknowledgements because that's exactly where it belongs, but I should have said this from the top because I when we talk about calling, I am the only one talking out of my ass. Nate is an actual expert. He is credentialed. He now has the letters that go after his name, and his research is specific to the experience of calling. And that's why we focus on that particular subject like we do, because I find it endlessly fascinating. And Nate is actually, uh, uh, you know, a world class, expert thought leader on the topic. So I throw out what I'm thinking about. And then Nate tells me what uh, the great thinkers have to say about what about (laughs) what I think.
1: And then I just regurgitate what I've read. Back to you.
0: Yeah, which is what you're supposed to do. Which okay. is, which yeah. is what academics do. They read and they remember what they've read. Which is not, not my style. <laughs> um, I don't have any. I don't know how to uh, cite all the podcasts I've listened to. <laughs> yeah. I don't know who said what. I just have it written in my in the notes app on my phone.
1: Matt, the number of times when I'm teaching class and I want to refer to some reel that I watched or, or, or like this, this meme, have y'all seen? And I realize I, I have, I have no way of, no way of substantiating whatever's about to come out of my mouth, but it's still real.
0: Right. Well, and I'm sure your students don't, they, they don't blink. It's like, yeah, tell us what you saw in the reel. It's it, just as valid. Yeah. Yes. It's just as valid as anything else that you just said about Heidegger or Schleiermacher. Yeah. They're like, what account is that? (laughs) Yeah. I just quote, I just quote, um, Alan Watts, Twitter account. Most of the time after I figure out what the hell he's talking about.
1: Yeah. And then you explain to me what he's talking about.
0: Right. Right. Well, I want to talk. I want to keep talking about calling. Uh, we spent a good hour talking about on on a previous episode, but we are just sort of scratching the surface because it goes so much deeper. I think the way that people perceive the experience of calling is very different from the way I've come to think about it. And I, I would think that you would agree with this, Nate, but it's, it's much more of a ongoing, endless process of wrestling with the experience of trying to determine what that experience is, what it means. Is it transpersonal? Is it universal? Is it God? Is it me? Is it, um, is it just something, um, that I'm my personality? Is it just my personality? Is it just my neuroticism? All of these things that we all deal with but we don't necessarily put them under the label of calling. They're often just our internal dialogue or our conscience, or maybe our superego. We don't really know most of the time when we're talking about calling, what we're actually talking about. And so we put it under the umbrella, Nate and I put it under the umbrella of calling and a lot of people don't necessarily categorize it that way. But the experience for me, Now, looking back, and Nate, I know we sort of mentioned this on the phone the other day, but now looking back, I can file so many of my experiences under the category of calling that at the time when I was experiencing them, I did not think of them that way. And so that term calling has broadened its definition, it's broadened its meaning, it's broadened its implications for me. And I want to know what you think about that experience of calling in the moment of saying, I feel called right now. And then that experience of looking back at all of these other experiences and all of these other feelings and thoughts that now in hindsight, we would classify as calling but in the moment we may not have
1: yeah well i i think first of all there are quite a few misconceptions around calling at, at least as far as as far as i'm concerned so when i talk about calling what i'm not talking about is like some sense of purpose necessarily doesn't ha- it it can be it almost always includes that but that's not that uh, that's only part of the equation is a sense of purpose. Um, what I'm really talking about it for me is, is a sense of identity. Um, for, for instance, for instance, <clears throat> nobody out there says, um, yeah, so I think I've got a calling. Um, I mean, it's pretty compelling, but I I don't really know if I want to do anything with it. Like I could take it or leave it. It's not a calling, right? (laughs) A calling is a thing that, uh, is a thing you can't not do for reasons you can't fully understand, um, or communicate, but that are nonetheless compelling. And I would, I would go a little bit further to say a calling is, (laughs) is a version of you that you can't not be. Um, and so I don't, I I don't want to get too, and I don't get too weird with this, but what I mean is like, uh, for so, for instance, my research participants for these are these are folks in the helping professions. This is anybody that relates to human beings as part of their job. They're probably going to articulate in some way a sense of of calling, of feeling summoned to the work that it almost picked them. Right? It's like the rest, it's like the rescue puppy that you don't pick it. It picks you. It it's similar to that. Um, and. It's compelling in that even if you wanted to stop, you'd still do it. It's like you, you meet a good teacher, and they're a good teacher everywhere they go. You could run into them in the grocery, you know, like in the fruit aisle in the grocery store, and they're gonna still be a teacher because they can't not do it. So that's what I mean when I say it's not really about a purpose so much as it's about an identity. And that's why that's why I think to go back to some of the stuff we talked about earlier, Matt. When we talking about repressing a vocation or not listening to the voice of vocation as having these consequences that, that will actually destroy your life. Right. It's because it's not that you're not listening to like a job opportunity that you should be taking. It's that you're not listening to the voice of yourself. You're, you're repressing that. I I guess I don't want to get, you know, the psychological stuff. I, I don't, I don't touch that, but that's what I think really we're, we're talking about.
0: Okay. So you're, saying, and this is, this is an interesting, uh, topic to discuss. You're saying that it's a, it's a summoning. It's an identity that you can't not live out, that you can't deny. It's a, it's a, it's a, a version of you. It's a, it's and it's a part of you that you can't deny that just comes out and I understand what you're saying when you say that. However, it feels like you can deny or suppress. Like your true self, you you can't get rid of it. The call You can't get rid of the calling. You can't get rid of that part of you which feels called. But I feel like you can repress it or suppress it or deny it. Would, would you agree with that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You certainly can, um, you can, you can, you can ignore it. Okay. That that's the, that's the language I would use. I'd say you can ignore it, which, which is akin to, to, um, putting on magic sunglasses and saying, as long as I have these sunglasses on, nobody can see me. I'm invisible. It's like every, everybody still knows. You still know it's still there. You're just not going to acknowledge that that's part of reality. Th- does that make sense? Yes. so so you can feel um, um, trying to think of of a good example here. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was having a conversation with somebody this was a couple of weeks ago who felt called to ministry, right? but it would mean that they would have to give up quite a bit, including some serious income. And, you know, and so she's, you know, she's talking about, she's, she's a VP. uh, She's got a great corporate job, Um, but she wakes up and she thinks about this and she goes to bed and she thinks about this. And she's like, and as I look back on my life, I just see myself. I realize I've been constantly doing this my whole life, this kind of ministry. And, and what I did was I just stopped her for a moment and I said, You're, to, we talked about Parker Palmer last week. This is a Parker Palmer line. Hey, your life is showing up right now. Your life is speaking to you saying, this is who you've always been. You've been doing this and you didn't know it. And so the question then is, are you going to be able to follow that summons? Uh, and her reply to me was, well, if I don't, it's going to follow me, won't it? And I was like, that's it. Um, So it's something she looked back on and realized this is who I've been all along.
0: Yeah. And I think the idea of it's going to follow me in Jungian terms, I, I think what he might say is it's going to haunt you. And the, the, you part is interesting to me. It's a part of me. What part of me can ignore? The part of me that call that's called that senses the calling, that feels the pull of the calling. There's a part of me that can ignore that other part of me, and and that's what I find interesting. I, I think, I think, um, Nietzsche makes reference to, um, and this may not be word for word, but but a plurality of dynamic spiritual forces. Like the self is a plurality of dynamic spiritual forces. There's, you know, what we might call our better angels. Um, There's these instincts and these drives within us, but there's also this personality and personality traits, which is what the depth psychologists are trying to understand. It's what Freud was digging at. It's what Jung did a much better job of, of identifying, but then there's a whole school of psychology that's trying to understand what are those dynamic spiritual forces at work within me? And what is the me that's trying to either integrate those spiritual forces or repress those spiritual forces? But I think what we're saying is that the feeling of being called, the experience of being called is a dynamic spiritual force and if we ignore that dynamic spiritual force we do so at our own peril in in a sense
1: yeah and and it doesn't it doesn't require religious beliefs that's that's what's even more extraordinary about the experience of calling one it's universal in that in that you find it in every culture in every religion right you find it almost i I mean i would think actually in every profession and there's this there's this incredible study on i may have referenced this in a previous episode on zookeepers on it's i think the study is actually called the call of the wild and Mm -hmm. and they're looking at the correlation between religiosity and calling among among um uh, people that work at a zoo because apparently that Apparently, the, the job quality of working at a zoo is incredibly low. It's really demanding. You deal with sick animals all the time, right? Um, it's hard work. And they're trying to figure out why on earth anybody would do this. And so they look at, they they come up with a metric. And what they found was that there is no correlation between religiosity and sense of calling. In other words, you can be agnostic or atheist, and still experience a transcendent summons to your work. In other words, still feel like there is something out there that is pulling you into that. Um, and that's an extraordinary thing because we always think, well, it's like, you know, God has this purpose for my life, right? And I've just got to figure out what this thing is. It's like, you, you actually don't. You don't. You don't need to have any kind of religious beliefs
0: at all. You could well you could be a kid, okay. You know. So. So here's what I here's what I want to talk about is I think it, for the way you are saying that you don't have to have any religious beliefs and it's not necessarily a religious experience I believe okay so you're saying that in the way a rational materialist would would say, would identify religious beliefs. What I believe is that we all have religious beliefs. They're wired into our psyche. We all see the world through a religious lens. And some of us turn that into uh, a, a God religion, And some of us turn that into other forms of religion, whether it's science or otherwise, but those religious, we see the world through a religious lens. So we come into the world with our perceptive framework and we don't just see material. We don't see just matter and atoms. We see the world from the beginning as a, as an adventure, as a path that calls us through it and toward the end of it. We see it as a landscape to move through. We see the world as a we don't see the world as objects around us. We see the world as a landscape to move through. And so within that landscape, is built in a hierarchy of goals that we are wanting to achieve. And so our perception blocks out all of the things in the world that don't apply to our to our goal, to our path. So we don't see the things that help us, we don't see the things that are irrelevant to our path forward. And we do see the things that apply to help us move toward our goals and objectives. The world to us is either obstacle or or, um, proponent. It's either helping us move through to our destination or hindering us. And all we see are the things that help or hinder. The things that neither help nor hinder, we don't even perceive those. So when you see a rectangle that's roughly Eight feet tall and four feet wide, in you know, a cut out of a wall, you don't see the the frame and the drywall and the molding and the metal circle and say, okay, that looks like a doorknob and this looks like, uh, you know, a, a door frame. So this is probably a door. No, what you see is something to walk through, and then then you then you go back and go, oh yeah, that's a door and there's a frame and there's a knob, but the first, what you see, what you perceive is something to move through. You see a doorway and then you go back and identify the parts of the doorway. But what you see first is a vehicle that moves you through to where you're trying to go. And what you see is either a doorway going to a room where I want to go or a doorway going to a room where I don't want to go. And then you go back and say, well, that, you know, that door is, is eight feet tall and four feet wide, and it has a a brass knob and it looks like it has a lock and you can then identify the parts, but you see the whole in terms of its usefulness first. And then you can go back and identify the parts. So we see life the same way we see a doorway. It's something to move through to get us where we want to go. And then we go back and identify the parts of the landscape around us, but we're moving through and whether you're an atheist or an agnostic, you're, you see the world as something to move through which then comes with its own hierarchy. These things are quote unquote good because they move me toward my destination. These things are less good. These things are neutral. These things are impediments. These things are bad. And these things I can ignore. You already categorize the world around you as good, bad, and neutral. And so you're called like the, what are, the destination is, is the calling is built in to human perception. Like we're already, and, and I guess human perception is just a reflection of the fact that we're called and that we have a hierarchy of, of being a hierarchy of, of, um, landscape categorization. You know, if you're, when your gas tank, is close to e you see gas stations and gas prices everywhere you're like you're like thinking about getting gas and you're looking and you notice there's a gas station here well there's another one up here whereas otherwise if your tank was full you would zoom right past without even noticing you could get to your destination and someone would ask how many gas stations did you pass i have no idea but if you If you were running on fumes and someone said, how many gas stations did you pass? You would say, well, I passed three, but I can wait because there's another one that's going to be close. When I leave to go back out again, I can still get gas. I'm not going to be empty. So what your, what's calling to you determines what you perceive and what you focus on Am I? does that make sense? Am I explaining that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think you hit the nail in the head. I can, I can hear my, uh, David S. Pacini, my, um, uh, this graduate school professor I had whenever, who smelled like cigarettes. He had yellow teeth. He was an old guy. He had holes in his sweater. You know, he wore, he wore these like Brooks Brothers sweaters, sweater vests from the eighties every day. Um, like growling at us with his, with his hands on his, on his head saying, it's a way of orienting yourself in the world. It is nothing more and nothing less. Stop trying to make it more and stop trying to make it less. And he would be so furious with us that we were like, no, 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 that it's it's more. And he's like, no, it is. it is functionally the way you orient yourself in the world. And I think that's what you just described is it is... We've talked about it before as being an animating factor it's also an orienting factor um Mm -hmm. in that um consciousness is never neutral and it never occurs in a vacuum it's there's a concept um and matt this is from a psychologist you've probably come across this um called intentionality which doesn't mean it has nothing to do with being deliberate or doing something on purpose it means that our consciousness is always directed toward a thing so it's always followed by a preposition. It's we're never just conscious like the, the joke about men having a nothing box they can go into. I mean, yeah, that's true maybe, but in a sense, but we're never in a nothing box ever. So I'm always thinking of something, thinking about something, thinking through something. Um, I am incapable of somebody that is in the, as someone that's in the world of doing anything neutrally or doing anything in a vacuum. And so, you know, what, what you're describing about looking at a doorway, right? We we don't orient ourselves in the world to deconstruct the doorway. Like we learn how to turn a doorknob and for the rest of our lives, we never think about it again until the door is locked until the car, until our gas tank is on empty. And then we think about it, but we just orient, we orient our way like through the world. And, um, And so I I know, yeah, so I think in that sense, yeah, that calling is a universal phenomenon um, in that it doesn't require explicitly religious beliefs, but it, we're all trying to figure out how to orient ourselves through the world and we've evolved to be that way. So it's equal opportunity, man.
0: Yeah, because we learn how to use a doorknob long before we learn what a doorknob is. Nailed it. And what, what. One of my heroes, Jonathan Pajot, he's the one that turned me on to this way of thinking, and he always uses, he always uses either a cup or a chair. A cup speaks to us, no matter even if it's a chalice, a, a, an ornamental chalice. The cup speaks to us as something to drink out of, like it tells us, it tells us where to grab, where to put our hands, how to lift everything, the cup tells us, speaks to us to pick it up and drink it. And then if somebody says, well, what did you just drink out of? Well, I drink out of a cup. Well, what is a cup? Well, then you go, well, you know, it has a circle, it's sort of cylindrical and there's a little handle, but you didn't go, well, there's a handle and it's a cylinder. I bet this is a, this looks like it's probably something capable of holding a liquid. You don't see the parts until after you see the purpose and the same with a chair, a small child sees a chair and sits in it without knowing what gravity is or what woodworking is or how things are constructed. It just objects appear to us according to their usefulness and according to their purpose. And then we go back and deconstruct those things. So the the purpose and you 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 talk about orientation versus animation, you know, things that animate us or things that orient us. I think things that orient us properly, they orient us first and if they orient us properly then they animate us. If the Give me an thing example. So if, the, if, a, um, if, a glass, if you're thirsty and a glass of water appears to you and orients you, you see it out of the corner of your eye and it takes, it grabs your attention. First, that's what happens first is it grabs your attention out of, out of all the things that could be in your vision because you're thirsty, the cup, wherever it is, however small or out of the way it is, will grab, catch your eye. Catch, I mean, even the verb we use, catch your eye. It catches your eye, grabs your attention. And then when you see that cup of water, it animates you, it animates you to, to go and get the cup and take a drink. So it orients you, Your the cup orients your attention towards it. And then because that cup is the direction, the proper direction to go when you're thirsty is toward the cup of water that animates you and moves you toward what will fulfill your thirst, what will provide for your need. So anything that orients us properly then animates us, and that 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 is powerful because the flip side must be true. If it doesn't orient us properly, it can't animate us. And so Nietzsche's idea of us determining our own, we have to determine determine our own morality, determine our own system of ethics. Because because we've killed God with our with our material rational materialism, we have to now come up with our own values. We have to determine our own values. Well, we can determine our own values in a, we can draw a map, but if that map doesn't actually orient us, it will not animate us. It's just arbitrary. And only proper orientation can then animate us. And so that's why we become depressed or anxious or lethargic or nihilistic. Because we may have attempted to orient ourselves in the world, but if what we're oriented towards is not proper, is not the highest, it will not animate us and we'll be stuck. Yeah, Matt,
1: there's, there's so much in there that you just, you you, you just laid out. So one, I want to go back to the way you described the cup. It is a thing that I've, I think you said it, it catches your eye, it grabs your attention, right? And then it animates us. Matt, the description that you just gave of your relationship to the cup is you're the passive agent and the cup is the active agent. You are being acted upon by the cup. It grabbed your attention, it caught your eye, it animated your behavior. And what you just described is how is how so often People that have an experience of vocation describe their sense of vocation that they are being acted upon by a thing in this world, right? And so, um, so I I think that illustration is is like perfect. It's perfect. Um, uh, the you know the the other part of this is that it's the interaction between the parts and the whole. So when we talk about vocation, when I talk about vocation, I use, there are two German verbs that I use and, and one's very obscure, um, for the word experience. So, so there is Erfahrung, which is uh, life experience, street cred, right? It's that I've got a lot of, you know, I've got a, I got a PhD in my life experience, right? Th- the that school kind of, thing. of
0: hard knocks
1: This there it is. It's the school of hard knocks, man. Um that's erfahrung. It's experience out that's out there. And then there's a different kind of experience. The German verb is erlebnis, which is it, it means like a direct encounter with the world. It's the kind of experience that gets dirt under your fingernails, that gets like sweat under your armpits. Um where you can think of a moment where you were so aware of how you were like situated in your body while this thing is happening, whatever it is, whether it's like going back to, whether it's going back to like, I don't know, little league baseball. And you can remember how the bat feels in your hand, right? That first time you, you step up to the plate or something like that. Um, but it's the interaction between the parts and the whole between those two kinds of experience that, that comprises our entire sense of vocation. And I would say it comprises our entire sense of how we orient ourselves in the world, period. It's walking through the doorway and, and for once being like, oh shit, is this thing gonna support me while, or support the entire building while I walk through it? I've never actually noticed that, uh, shouldn't this be an arch? Like, isn't an arch way more stable than a rectangle over my head? And I start to, I start to think about what's actually happening, that I'm walking through this doorway that I feel like is supporting the weight of, of like an eight story building. And suddenly I realize, I think I'm, I think I'm a psycho. I think I've been walking through doorways my entire life and never actually realized this thing could collapse on me any moment. And we, we suddenly become aware of the experience of as silly as it sounds, walking through a doorway, right? And so for vocation to talk about calling, um, is, is to somehow like hold intention. These moments where you like do the thing that you know that you were made to do, where you're like, man, I was good at that. I helped people. It was fulfilling. I had to sacrifice for it. Like this is it with like, like the person I talked to last week, Two weeks ago, who's like, yeah, but I've got this huge entire life that I have to also navigate where I've got a corporate job. I've got three kids. I'm a single mom. um, I'm 53 years old. I can't go back to school now. It's having to balance those two types of experience. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and in between,
1: you just constantly think you're, you're both the sanest person in the room and the craziest person in the room.
0: Yes. Well, and I, you're, you're leading me down a path that I was hoping we would go. Um, when you talk about balancing those two experiences, because I, I was listening to Jordan Peterson this week, talk about it as a dance, you mm-hmm. dance with, and he was talking about uh, your conscience, He was talking about you it's a you engage in a dance with your conscience and i think that the experience with calling is very our our relationship to calling is very similar to our relationship with our conscience and i want to i want to give my personal experience because i haven't i should have shared this a while ago just like i should have shared your academic accomplishments before we started before we had this conversation. Um, Because I'll share my experience with what we're talking about. And then it'll probably highlight some of the themes, some of the concepts we're talking about. So I shared I'm a five on the Enneagram. I didn't know I was a five, but I can go back as far back as I want to go, you know, reading stats off the back of baseball cards watching Sports Center over and over again, trying to memorize what I was seeing, trying to categorize, you know, going back to eighth grade, I'm, I'm outside the cafeteria, I'm being an observer. I'm trying to, I'm trying to step back outside of the world, see the world, analyze the world to the degree that I'm, I feel comfortable now engaging with the world. You know, mom referred to me, I don't even know how young I was, extremely young, as the absent-minded professor. Like that was just the, the way I was even from a small child. Get into high school, the only thing that turned me on in class were the transcendentalists, were Emerson and Thoreau. I couldn't care less about anything else that we had ever talked about in school until we talked about the transcendentalists, and I was like, what in the world? I was these guys were on to something. Like my, my curiosity was was peaked to the max. And then I had creative writing with Mrs. Love, the the best class I ever had, and there's not even a second place, where we just sat, she gave us some sort of framework for this is what you're gonna write about, go for it. And we would write and we would share. And I talk about feeling, I can still remember the feeling of the furniture cover draped over the couch I was sitting on, and the carpet on the floor underneath my feet. And I knew, in co- I got to college, and I thought, I want to be a writer. But I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what am I going to write about? How will anyone pay me? Why would anyone pay me to write anything? And I was in honors English, my only honors class in college. And my professor was far from inspiring. I don't remember his name. I just know he was old and crotchety. And he gave me a C, no feedback at all on my papers, on anything I was writing. I have no idea. Maybe it wasn't good. Maybe it just wasn't what he was looking for, but I thought, man, this, I'm not going to be a writer. I have like, I have no, there was no confirmation. There was no external validation in that direction that this is like first semester freshman year. Well then maybe I, maybe I can write as a journalist, but I don't even know what that means. Like, what am I going to write for the local newspaper? Do I just like follow ambulances around and write about, new, you know, like the evening news stories, that doesn't sound fun. They don't get paid anything. And they work in the middle of the night on tight deadlines. That doesn't sound like fun and smart people in my life. you know, we, it's almost a cliche. Like majoring today, today we, the, the, the punchline is always sociology. What are you going to take out a hundred thousand dollars in college debt or the, and get a sociology degree, but you know, 20 years ago, it was, it was psychology. What are you going to do? You got to go, what are you going to do? Get a master's in psychology? What's like, what are you going to do with that?
1: Hey, what's, what's the difference between a large cheese pizza and a degree in sociology, a large cheese pizza can feed a family of four.
0: (laughs) I should have seen that one coming. Um, but that was like, I had no desire to, to study business. I had no desire to study like those classes meant absolutely nothing to me. Did not move yeah. the needle at all. Yeah. Psychology was interesting, but it, you know, okay. I, I, didn't see a pathway, but then I took a philosophy class as a junior, probably I think that was, yeah. My intro to philosophy class was amazing. It was like, this is fun. Like I, I tell me more, give me a book to read, whatever. And then I took a, um, I took a senior level philosophy class having only taken intro to philosophy class. And there was all, there was a whole room full of adult studies people, because it was a, it was an evening class. I don't know. It don't, that was the only one that worked for me. I don't, I don't remember, but there was like, there were like 20 adults and there were like five undergrads and they like, I don't know, 18 of the 20 adults. Dropped out after like two days because this stuff was so heady and so strange, and I was like, "This is the best thing I've ever heard." Like, I I actually read—I, I I never—I don't think I ever read a book like in school, but I read my philosophy book my senior year of college. So, what I'm getting at is, like, these things called my attention. They caught my attention. I was interested in these things and they, they animated me and it was like, Oh, this is, this stuff is awesome. But again, what are you going to do with a philosophy degree? That was the voice, the other voice in the back of my head saying, what are you going to do with a philosophy degree? Nothing. You can teach. I don't want to teach. I didn't even know what that meant to teach. So I just got my business degree. Um, a man, a management degree had no idea. I kept thinking like everybody was a management major. Like if you're a business major, you manage, you, you major in management. And I was like, what are all these people managing? That was the question I had in my head. Like, cause I was like, I could, I guess I could do a management degree, but what do I, what am I going to manage? What's the deal with management? Yeah. It's
1: Jerry Seinfeld.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Who's getting managed and who's doing the managing and why do all these people want, I don't want to be managed and I don't want to manage. anyone. <laughs> like, I don't want either of those. things. Yeah. I hate being managed. Why would anyone want to be a manager? And, uh, but it, that, that was like the piece of paper I needed. And then I started doing landscaping. The first time I did a landscaping job with Robert Consalvo he, we, we we did, it was a tiny job. We barely, it it was like this little, little courtyard. I bet we charged, you know, I don't know, 300 bucks, but I, I was, or I was arranging this grab, this gravel. I mean, I'm telling you, it was like a, it was like a three foot by six foot little gravel bed, but I turned it into some kind of design. And I, I swear, I still remember, I was like, This looks, I was like, Robert, come over here. I was like, it looks like a whale emerging from the ocean. The way I, the way I arranged this gravel. And it was like, it, it, it was a revelation. I was like, how do we get more of these jobs? Just bringing something into the world, making some kind of design, some kind of beauty out of a chaotic gravel pit was like, yes, do this as much as you can. And, um, then I got, so I was, I started doing landscaping just so I could have that, try to chase that feeling again of creating something and bringing something into the world. I got sidetracked. I don't know if I want to get into it, but I got sidetracked going into, you know, missions, short-term missions. Um, I should, I, I don't want to say this, but I should say this, I, you know, the director told me, you, you know, you, you should you should really come be a part of this like full time, is what we're doing. And I was like, yeah, that sounds interesting. Let me, let me, let me see what God tells me about this. And I, I don't know. I waited like three, four, five months maybe. And I, I told him, I was like, I don't feel anything. I don't hear the voice of God telling me to do this. And he was like, well, what if you just decide to do it and then wait and see if God tells you no. And I was like, well, I guess I could do that. And I, I went with it, and it ended up being the worst decision I've ever made in my life. Yeah. Um, so that you know, that's one of those, you know, impediments on on the path. But but like Richard Rohr says, there's no in the in the spirit realm, in the kingdom of God, there's no there are no dead ends. And it wasn't a dead end. It was a wrong turn, but it wasn't a dead end. All that being said, I I, I get into I come out of the ministry. I'm like, this is not for me. After I banged my head against the wall for a couple of years. And I was like, what about marketing? Because social media was a, was an outlet for me to create. Like Facebook was just becoming a thing that businesses used, And it was wild because you could be like a roofing company and you could post a status and like everyone would see it like immediately. It was like, from a marketing perspective, it was like taking candy from a baby. And then Facebook figured out real fast, like, Hey, we're going to charge people from now on, like, if you want people to see your stuff, you got to pay us." And so that changed real fast from something fun to something it was, you know, it was just analytical and you, you, know, you just put, put quarters in the machine and turn the knob and impressions. And I thought, well, this is still okay, but I can. This was me, this was the, the, the brazenness of someone in their 20s thinking the world was full of endless possibilities and that I could I could make out of the world whatever I wanted to make out of it. Well, I'll just sell my way into a, into a better job. I'll just do, I'll just sell all these deals, I'll make a bunch of money, then I can have my freedom. I can do whatever I want. Well, as it turns out, I couldn't sell anything to anyone at any point ever. Um, And, but I kept thinking, well, if I just work harder at it, then I can get good at it. If I, you know, I could just study this a little bit. I can keep practicing. I'll just sharpen, you know, the, the old Abraham Lincoln. If I have five hours to cut down a tree, I'll spend four hours sharpening my ax. I thought, oh, I can do this, you know? Well, again, I just banged my head into the wall in another direction. Um, and it didn't, it didn't take me where I wanted to go. And I hit that I hit that feeling of, of despair where it's like, is every path a dead end? Like is every doorway that makes itself, that, that looks open, is it? Is the door locked on all of those doors? And it wasn't until um, I decided to go back and take a master's class uh, uh, in psychology I took an online master's class um, through through Harvard's online program, that the extension, their extension school. And this this professor was like, he's probably 60 and a distinguished Harvard professor. He, you know, a, a distinguished researcher. He had done all kinds of, of really good work as a psychologist. He was well pedigreed. And he we're like three weeks into class and he's talking about revising papers. And he says to the rest of the class, he was like, I don't, I don't proofread papers, but he was half joking. He was like, yeah, you can there's, I don't know, 15 people in the class. He was like, you could send your papers to Matt. Matt's a, Matt's a great writer. He'll proofread them for you. And I was like, I, I was blown away. Cause I was just hoping to like, not embarrass myself. This is like 20 years after undergrad. I'm like, I just hope I don't bring any unnecessary attention to myself. I just wanted to hide. I didn't want to turn my zoom camera on. I just wanted to try to, you know, pass the class and get by. But here we are three weeks in and he's telling the class to send their papers to me to proofread. He's telling a,
1: a Harvard masters of psychology class to send you their papers. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And I said, Well, you can send them to me, but I haven't written a paper in 18 years. So, you know, send, send, send them over at your own risk. And he said, what? And I was like, yeah, I I haven't written a paper since undergrad. I can't remember, you know, I don't even remember what the last paper I wrote. And he was like, that is wild. He was like, you're a really good writer. He goes, he goes, he, he goes, actually, you're, you're a phenomenal writer. And I was like, what? Did he just, I'm looking like a double take, like, (laughs) did he just say that? And it was like, it was, it was at that moment, the, the moment that you're describing where like everything made sense. It was like, oh yeah, this is where all of the, where all of the signs have been pointing me, this is what I should have been. This is the direction that I should have been going down. This is what I, I should have sacrificed all of those other things that I thought I wanted for this, because this is not only where my interests are, it's also where my gifts are and all like, then I'm, that's when I'm going back and going. Yeah. Mom called me the absent-minded professor. Yeah. The transcendentalists were the only thing that inspired me. Yeah. Mrs. Love's creative writing class was the only class I got excited about. Yeah. Uh, philosophy, I got an A in, and management, I struggled for a C. Yeah, the creative aspect of designing gardens was what animated me. And it's like, oh, okay, this is what that is. And it's that moment where everything behind you makes sense. And of course, I, I, I probably still don't know exactly what that means going forward. Like, I don't have, you know, I don't have the path from A to Z of what my future holds, but I do know where the next step should, I do know where that, where that gravitas is pulling me, where my true self is, is moving.
1: You know, the direction of the summons. Yes. Yeah.
0: That's it. That's it. It's like, I, I know I'm no longer, what would you call it? Kicking against the goads. I'm no longer fighting what that, the, the, the part of me that's trying to move me forward in the world.
1: Yeah. And Matt, and, you know, and I think this is common for folks when you talk about vocation, but especially in your case, where you look back and you're like, people have been telling me this my whole life. Yes. Right. Like it was actually me that wasn't listening or for whatever reason. You're like, am I the last one to figure this out? Yeah. Like I've been sending you papers. I've been sending you my papers for, for like, I mean, I can remember being a freshman in high school and being like, Hey Matt, can you, I got to write this. I got to write this, uh, short story for Mrs. Runkle's class. Can you, can you look at this?
0: Um, Yeah. Well, and my best friend, Ryan Germany, I, I, I told him what I was doing you know, in this in this master's class and he was like, man, I wish you would have done that a long time ago. Yeah. And I'm like, you asshole, why didn't you say this a long time ago? <laughs> you know but yeah. But I, but I, I mean, I'm the asshole. Like it, it was obvious to everyone except except for me.
1: Well, when the teacher, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. That's it. right. Yeah. That's but it. I mean, Matt, what you just described is is incredible. Because you're talking about, I think, and, and you just stop me if I'm, if this isn't connecting with your experience, but you're actually, uh, we talked about this the other day, you're restoring past, present and future. So what, like what you just described, Matt is, is like so fantastic because it's like you solved the mystery first, and then you went back and found the clues instead of the other way around. Right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's like you slowly formed this, came to this revelation or this 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 sense of self. And then you look back and you're like, Of course. The breadcrumbs, the breadcrumbs are are go back 40 years. Instead yeah. of what would be rational, right? And this is why calling is irrational. Would be rational is to be like, well, I'm gonna, you know, I see I have this clue here, and I've got this one here. And it seems like more often than not, people tell me that this is what I should be doing or, right. And eventually I'm going to arrive at this. I'm going to pretty, you know, pretty reasonably arrive at this idea that, that I should be writing and I should have these creative outlets and, and I need to be intellectually engaged in some way to feel alive. Right. That I get this gift. Um, But it's like, you start with, with with solving the mystery and then you work backwards and you find the clues and it's solving the mystery that shows you what the clues were it gives them meaning yes and and like what you described about you don't know what the future is right well that's that's why it's also that's also why it's Jung calls it an irrational factor I think because it's a weird thing that it's a weird thing for, for a corporate vice president to say, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I'm going to leave my, you know, half million dollar salary. And I don't know, I guess I'll go back to school. Right. Whereas yeah. I could at least predict some of my future, but I got to listen to the voice of vocation. I got to follow this or it's going to follow me. And so you have an idea of, cause it's always directional. Like we talked about, it's always, you know, it's. Consciousness always has a direction and always moves somewhere, but, but who knows, man? Um, so that, that, that I think is like the perfect example, Matt.
0: Of- yeah. Well, well, and you use the word restoring as, as yeah. a verb where, where you're, you, you're basically, you're editing the story that you, yes. the story that you've written so far and you're taking the parts that really you're, you're, removing the parts that were meaningless for you and you're saying, oh, here's the here's the real, here's the real story. And I think that's right because we see, you know, talking about our perceptions and talking about our our moving through the path as as our as a natural, it's the only way humans engage with the world as 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 if it's a path or a landscape to be moved through, in in a story form it's always narrative. Like I'm like, here I am in the story. I'm at the beginning of my story. I'm at the beginning of, I'm at this point on the map and the path forward is lays itself out in the form of a story. And, and that's what, you know, the postmodernists sort of figured that out is that we history is just history is just stories. It's not just arbitrary facts that we've grabbed onto. No, history to this point is written as a story. The future is written as a story. Our lives are stories. Like we we can't think of our lives in any other way other than in story form. And so to restory means just, you're just going back and you're looking at your story so far and you're sort of editing and going, oh, wait, here's the really important parts of this story. And here's here are the here are the parts of the story that are really going to impact the next chapter. This is what I need to focus. The, this part, these parts of the story, are really going to determine what happens next.
1: Yeah, it's it's um, it's the thing that separates us from from the animals is is the ability to tell a story, which is to say, it's the ability to engage in hermeneutics, right? The ability to make meaning out of a thing to interpret a thing as part of a larger thing. Yes. And that apart from that larger thing, it has no meaning and vice versa. It's, um, um, oh, uh, shoot, man, I forget where I, was, where I was going with that, but,
0: um, but the meaning, the meaning speaks itself to us. Like we, we see the meaning. It's not that we make it, It's not necessarily that we make, and, and maybe that's where the postmodern modernists get it wrong. Is that it's not just that we we pick these stories out of history because they they give us they you know they put us in power. It's that these are the stories that meant something to us that that we found meaning in. We didn't just take this. We didn't hand pick the stories that we that would give us that that would give our next chapter power or some sort of advantage over competitive advantage over the rest of people no these stories meant something to us for a reason we didn't decide which stories meant something to us the stories themselves like the cup that tells us to drink the stories told us which ones the stories told us which ones had the meaning it's
1: all right it's um the best the best way I to describe this um well, I'll give you two examples. So one, one thing that's f- super interesting about talking to people w- about their calling is that they always describe it in dialogical f- form. In other words, it's always part of a conversation that's happening. It's as if when they're telling you what's happening, they're t- they're trying to tell you a story. So they'll say things like, "Yeah," and then it was like, "God told me this," but look, I, I, I was thinking about it like this, and I told God, "Like, no, I'm not gonna do you know, I'm not gonna do that." But then God. told... And it's this back and forth dialogue that you realize never actually literally occurred, but we can't help, but tell it in a story form to one another because we, what would actually sound crazier than that is if I just tried to, is if I tried to describe to you what that experience was like, um, in a technical sense, right. That, that would actually sound nuts you'd be like, this guy, what, what is wrong with, you know, like how, how detached from reality is this guy? But if yeah. I am like, but if I, but if I show up and I'm like, yeah, man, it was like, God was talking to me and I, I, I but I told God, we're like, Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Been there. Right. Cause we got to tell the story. And the second, the second part is that you, you nailed it. When you said I, the stories, the stories uh, tell us, right. That again, we're being acted upon. Um, there's a, I, I mentioned a few few weeks back about an, uh, a recent article that's really good um, called The Vocations We Don't Choose. And it's about the role of grief and, you know, w- when we go through hard things and suddenly our eyes are open to this need and now we're like, man, I've got to spend the rest of my life, you know, helping, helping with this or doing this thing. But the title is The Vocations We Don't Choose. And I would say, is there any other kind? Because- the vocation chooses us, the stories tell us. And that while there's certain, we always have agency, right? To decide whether to acknowledge it or to ignore it. But if there's not some sense that this thing chose you, then we might not be talking about calling. If there's not some sense that the story was written and you're like, without your, <laughs> without your, um, consent, then it, it might not be calling. Um, And, and so I think, I think there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a lot of hope there in the sense that, um, when you recognize what that story is, but Matt, and I know, I mean, I can relate to this. I know you can. There's also a lot of desperation or a lot of, uh, you know, depression, um, a lot of pain when you can't see what the story is when you feel like you're kind of aimless, right? Or you're like, man, I have no idea what's happening in my life right now. I thought it was supposed to be like this. I felt called to this thing. I felt like this is what I was supposed to be doing. And now none of it's working. That's how we feel. And until we can get to the point where we can see ourselves as part of a story, um, it's it's a very lonely place. Um, And then the last thing I'll say, Matt, is that the best, I think the best metaphor, the best imagery that I can come up with Is it's it's um uh it's Odysseus uh returning on the journey, returning from the journey and trying to trying to resist the sirens, right? And it's like you chain yourself to the mast and you fill your ears with wax, you know, as you try to resist that like voice of vocation, you try to resist the story telling itself to you. And you find out that the ship is steering itself and you fill your ears with wax and you find out that the song is actually inside of you, that you can't escape it. All you can do is pretend to ignore it. That's your best. That's the best you can do.
0: Um, yeah. I would, I, and I was going to say almost that exact same thing. When you say this, the song is inside of you, because I think for me, the, the most compelling, metaphor and and all we can do is talk about this in in metaphors
1: that's that's the only way yes
0: is music and dance Hmm. the music is the story music there's no right specific right way to dance but there is certainly a wrong way to dance (laughs) like yeah yeah but the music tells you how to dance the music. It's like when you can't, you, you say, when you can't hear the story, when you can't identify the story Yeah. in a sense, you can't hear the music you're trying to dance, but you can't hear the music or talking about the calling in terms of, in terms of, you know, tech, technically it's parts. It's like describing a dance technically. Well, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds stupid. Uh, Well, I sort of wiggled my upper body this way and my toes point, you can't, but if you turn the music on so that the other person can hear the music, and that's what people are trying to do when they tell you their story about their calling, they're trying to let you hear the music so that you understand the dance, so that you understand why they're dancing this way, because it, it looks we all know it looks ridiculous to dance without music on. Like when they when you turn the music off or even when you watch a movie, when you, if you watch Star Wars and Darth Vader walks into the ship and it, dun, 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 dun 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 if you turn that off, that movie sucks. Like there's no you you're not afraid of Darth Vader. You he just looks like a weirdo. Like what a big is he plastic wearing? plastic mask on yeah, why is he breathing like that? But then, the, when you hear the soundtrack, you're like, "I know exactly who this guy is. I know exactly what he came here to do." And everybody better get the hell out of the way. And it's the, the, that's what is that's like what calling it. It's the music that we're dancing to. It's and the
1: soundtrack, not the lightning bolt.
0: Exactly, exactly. It's it's the rhythm. Um, um,
1: it's it's and so. Uh... Sorry, go ahead.
0: Well, I just wanted to, because because Jordan Peterson started me thinking in this way earlier this week, and, and he, he said he was talking about our conscience. And I alluded to this earlier, but he, he says one autonomous spiritual manifestation, one autonomous spiritual manifestation that affects all of us is the appearance of what compels our interests like the, the cup out of the corner of our eye that grabs our attention. It compels our, we it's autonomous because we don't control our interests. Our interests control us. We don't choose our interests. Like the music compels us to dance in a certain way to a certain rhythm. And it's, it's Peterson says, quote, it's summed up in the notion of a calling it's what what's interesting beckons you it it isn't it isn't fully under your control you can ignore it you can follow it you can pervert it but you can't fully control it you have to enter into a dance with it you have to make your peace with it and that's what that's essentially what we're talking about is that we we don't decide what's interesting to us we don't decide what's meaningful to us Those things appear to manifest, they manifest themselves in us as because we're, we're, we're created to dance. We are dancing, but it's just to what, can we hear the music, the music that's, that's playing and can we then respond, then our body enters into the world and the material then responds to the spiritual, to the, to the music that that's playing.
1: Yeah, Matt, there's so much there to unpack. Man, you're, you're just, you're like nailing it. Um, <clears throat> here's, a, here's a quote from James Hillman, who's a Jungian analyst, um, from The Soul's Code in Search of Character and Calling. And I, I have this as, as an epigraph uh, for the beginning of my chapter four. Um, and <clears throat> I mean, it gets, I get emotional just reading the words out loud. A calling may be postponed, avoided, intermittently missed. It may also possess you completely. Whatever, eventually, the thing will out. It makes its claim. The daimon does not go away, and I, I think, you know what what you're what you're describing is similar to what I've I've I, I feel like I talk about Friedrich Schleiermacher every week, but he in his speeches on religion he says. He says something like incredible about re- about what religious experience is, and the entire the entire book, the the short speeches, is directed toward people that don't think they don't think religious experience exists. And he's his whole argument is it's you woke up this morning and you're doing it, but he says you do nothing because of religion, but everything with religion, hmm. and I think your calling is the same way. When you're really embodying your calling, you do nothing because of it. You don't. You don't really. You don't try to become a person that's called to a thing. You simply. It's like running into. It's like running into a great middle school teacher in the. You know, in the produce aisle, they do everything with it. They're going to find a way to teach you in those thirty seconds. It's like finding. You know, it's like running into your old, like a lifetime. uh, I mean, a lifetime middle school football coach. It's like running into (laughs) Tim Ball yeah timball's gonna coach you whether you want to or not and you're always going to be better for it he doesn't have to try it try to do it he does everything with it because it's part of his calling and so i think you've cracked the code because what you're talking about is you like look back on your history and you you like put it you're, you're you're following those breadcrumbs is you're going back and saying like what's the story uh, what's the story here that I can't stop hearing? And, yeah. and you're taking it to the sec, I think to the second step, um, which is asking yourself, why do I hear this story in the first place? Why is it, this is the thing that has caught my attention because that's where your calling lies. I, I think I don't want to, I don't ever want to set myself up because I re- this isn't what I do um, of like giving advice about how do you find your calling? But I I would just say that ask yourself why you pay attention to those things. And there's probably something there. I know there is for me. It sounds like there is for you.
0: Well, and we are, we already know the answer to that. You don't have to give advice. You shouldn't give advice because we all already know that at one point, at some point we heard the music at some point we, we, we may have lost the music. We may have turned the volume down. We may have listened to, and, and, and. Personally, we may have listened to some other voice over, you know, over the sound of the music, um, and and I, you know, you talk about, you know, Timball can't be anything other than a high a middle school coach because that's his calling. But further, because he's he is he has been listening to the music, yeah, and and I think. Amanda, our our sister, she's always been listening to that music. She has always heard that music. And and I made this reference to you personally, but it's like Jesus being in the temple at 12. Like that's, that's the relationship we should have with our calling.
1: Yeah, Yeah.
0: is that he's going, Mom, what are you doing? Did you not know? Like, this is my father's business. This is the music. Can you? He's going, Can you not hear the music? You didn't know that this was the, this, you didn't know that this was what I'm dancing to. Yeah. He's 12 and 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 he's going, this, this is it.
1: That's a, that's Amanda at, at six, right? Yes. Making, making us sit in class at, at two and four years old.
0: Yes. Well, and, and we're, we need to wrap up here. Yeah. But we haven't talked about, we haven't talked about the flip side of this very much. And I think, I think it's really important and maybe we can get to this sometime in the future, but Peterson goes on to say, and and he talks a lot about this. If you've ever listened to anything Jordan Peterson says, but he says every bit of responsibility, this is a direct quote, every bit of responsibility that is rightfully yours, that you haven't taken on makes the world a lesser place in a serious manner and worse than that. It makes you a slave and it opens the door to tyrants and turning down the volume, ignoring the music, distracting yourself from the music. There's, there's absolutely a downside. Not only do you not get the sense of gratification, not only do you, um, become more neurotic, but you become a slave to those forces, those, spiritual forces, autonomous spiritual forces that are pulling you into hell for lack of a better word, pulling you away from, if you're, if you're, if you're not dancing to the rhythm, if you're not dancing to the music, then you're, you're just moving chaotically. And it, it almost, it's almost a, it's almost a violence. It's a, it's almost a, it's an offense to, it's not just an offense to, to you. It has a, it has a ripple effect through the world and it, it makes you less you. It takes you further from your true self and it does damage to, to those around you. There, there, this is really an an important, yeah, this is really an important part of life, an important theme. Um, it's not something that's just for a few people who are, who feel like they should be teachers or ministers or, or, you know, missionaries or, or mother Teresa, like this is just a part of being a human that has a tremendous effect on your own experience and the experience of everyone around you.
1: Yeah. It's dehumanizing, right? Yeah. And, and that's not, that's, that's not going too far. No, because, I don't think so at all. Because and in, in this, Matt, I think this may be a good place for us to come around full circle when we talk about calling or vocation, we talk about it as your identity, right? The conce- the, the the typical conception of calling is like, it's a thing out there that either I've got to discern, or I just haven't figured out my true purpose yet, or something along those lines, right? As if it exists separate from me. It's hmm. like a thing I have to discern my way into, or fail my way into, like maybe when I've learned all my lessons, right? Like Christians are the worst of this, where they're like, If I would just stop listening to the flesh, then I would really be able to step into my calling. Like, no, no, actually what I want to say is no, it's the opposite, man. Like you think your calling is going to save you from yourself? Like your, your calling is your life showing up as your life. It's, and so when you talk about ignoring that calling that one, the repercussions are immense because you're doing, I don't know, you said violence, maybe you're, you're like hurting yourself. Yeah. And therefore you're projecting that onto the people around you that you love that while your calling is going to is irrational in the sense that you're going to have to make some sacrifices where you could have an easier life or a better life or something, something, right? Yeah. Some way it doesn't make sense. That's part of why it's a calling, but it's going to be in alignment. You're going to feel aligned. And so while it may seem like you're well, (laughs) at 22, you know, and you're getting a philosophy degree and people are like, what are you gonna do with a philosophy degree? Right. It may not make sense in that way, but, um, the, you know, the, the world is a better place because you've done that and you will continue to carry that with you no matter what vocation or what job you go into. So I, yeah, I, I think the the damage that we can do when we don't listen to the voice of vocation is which is to say the the voice of who we truly are is, is, you know, yeah, uh, man, look at, look at all of the, I'm going to get on soapbox real quick as we wrap up. Look at all of these like evangelical conservative pastors that it turns out they've got a second life, like a secret life where they're, they're in the closet, right. Where they're actually queer or something like that, but they can't bring them. They can't bring that with them or they've got to like, separate right they are actually creating separate selves they're out of alignment because they're trying to separate in this sense i would say their sexuality from their calling and you can't you can't separate yourself from yourself and i, I, I and that's people will disagree that that's not like a universal truth this is me saying i think that's how it works and so they end up destroying their lives they're destroying their families lives destroying their congregations and their communities of faith um, because they're not willing to integrate fully the voice of vocation into their identity. They're still trying to to compartmentalize this thing and it doesn't work that way. You just, you just, you do violence to yourself and the people around you.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a form of, it, it is again, it's, it's dancing to the wrong song. It's, it's, it's an attempt to silence like part of, you know, the string section of yeah. the orchestra, yeah. like you, you miss out, you, you'll be misdirected and misguided. You'll be, you will be misdirected and misguided. If you choose to ignore that, the song that's playing in you, in your heart, in your soul, in your spirit. And, and really what we're saying is that it, it's, it's this sort of, it, it's an autonomous spiritual manifestation that directs our interests first of all, and then identifies and it, it, it and and gives us our responsibilities. It's not only it, it it gives us it it shows us who we are and what what we are interested in, what compels us, but it also then becomes our weight to carry through the world our our way of our way of making for lack of a better word for for making the world the place that it could be and should be for bringing the kingdom of heaven into the into the world now it, it's for, it's that it's that heavy yeah
1: yeah yeah it's it's from making it the place that the story tells us it is yes right to, like you were talking about, it tells us what the story is.
0: Yeah, that's it. Well, I would love to. We we could keep going for a long time, um, but my my time has expired. I got to go get the kids from school. All right. So, um, this is awesome. Thanks, Nate. Yeah. Congratulations again on your yeah academic enterprises. Right. Well deserved. Well deserved. All the the accolades and the, um, affirmations that, that you've gotten this weekend and all along the way.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks, Matt. Thanks. And, and, and be sure to tell Branch, you got a new joke for him. What's the difference between a sociology degree and a large pizza, <laughs> Branch?
0: He'll laugh so hard and then I'll explain it to him. Like, <laughs> and then he'll ask you what it means. <laughs> yeah. And later I'll explain it to him. <laughs> all right, man. All right. Yep. yep. See you.